Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zach McCulley, and today my guest is Richard Stearns, and we're talking about his new book just released with IVP, Lead Like It Matters to God, Values-Driven Leadership in a Success-Driven World. Rich, congratulations on your new book, and thanks for joining me today. Hey, thanks, Zach. It's uh, uh, giving birth to a book is a long process, so it's exciting that it's, uh, it's just about <laughs> to be released. Well, it's, it's wonderful to have you here, Rich. But before we talk about your book, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how your background helped prepare you to write a book on leadership? Sure. Well, you know, I, I have had a very unusual career, I think. Um, so I attended Cornell University and got a degree in neurobiology and animal behavior. And of course, that led me uh, logically to get an MBA in marketing from the Wharton School, which I did right after (laughs) Cornell. And uh, of course, the next logical step is I got a job with a Fortune 500 corporation, uh, Gillette, in the Boston area, where I was in an entry-level position, basically marketing uh, deodorant and uh, uh, shampoo. And uh, I did that for a couple of years, and then I applied for a job at a toy and game company. Uh, your listeners would be familiar with Parker Brothers Games, uh, Monopoly, Clue, Sorry, Risk, Nerf Balls. And uh, after nine years at Parker Brothers, where I became CEO, uh, I ended up at Lenox China and Crystal, the fine tableware company, where I served for 11 years as division president, COO, and CEO. And then uh, in 1998, um, I accepted a call to lead World Vision United States uh, out here in the Seattle area, and I spent 20 years as the president of World Vision, traveling to about 65 different countries and logging about 3 million air miles. But So that's, in a nutshell, my career background, and I just had so many different leadership experiences in different fields and industries and cities and then traveling around the world with World Vision to meet leaders from many other countries. Uh, I felt after that long career, uh, I had a few things to say about leadership and particularly Christian leadership, because I think Christian leadership calls for a distinctive approach from the secular models. So that's the, uh, the quick background. Yeah, well, I, I think it's a really well-written book. And, you know, there's been thousands of leadership books written. You're writing this one as a Christian, and you talk about God's design for leadership here in this book. Can you tell us what do you try to do in the book, and how is this one perhaps different than those leadership books that utilize the uh, a, sec- a, a secular model? Yeah, well, you know, you're absolutely right. It's it's a different kind of leadership book. And in many ways, it's a contrarian kind of uh, approach to leadership, and it challenges some of the secular paradigms that are so prevalent uh, around us. So the the subtitle gives you a a clue, values-driven leadership in a success-driven world. And my thesis is that God is much more concerned about a leader's character than his or her accomplishments. Um, So in that thesis, I talk about the success paradigm that we are all marinating in, uh, the United States is very much a success-driven culture. You know, think about it. We celebrate the the winningest teams, uh, the most uh, accomplished athletes, um, the fastest-growing corporations. Uh, we celebrate 
uh, success at every level, even in our children. You know, we celebrate their successes in school and on the playing fields and uh, certainly success in business, success as defined by uh, income and status. We are literally marinating in a success-obsessed culture. But I say in the book that, you know, success is really overrated. And and for a Christian, uh, God is not impressed by the title on your business card or the size of your bank account or the number of people that you manage or lead. You know, he's not impressed by that drive for success that is everywhere around us. In fact, I I worry that for many Christians in leadership roles wherever, uh, success can actually become a form of idolatry where you're so driven to be successful, you forget your real purpose as a follower of Christ on earth. And there's a story about Mother Teresa that actually motivated me to write this book or a book with this concept. And the story goes like this. Um, Mother Teresa was obviously the famous uh, nun who spent 40 years of her life serving the poorest of the poor in Calcutta, India. She became a global figure because of her work. But uh, sometime a number of years ago, uh, Senator Mark Hatfield from Oregon was visiting Mother Teresa in Calcutta. And Senator Hatfield uh, looked around her, you know, this tiny little uh, work uh, with the other nuns that she'd established in the slums of Calcutta. And he saw a sea of humanity and poverty. And at, at one point he said to Mother Teresa, something like this, Mother Teresa, don't you, don't you feel like a failure because the, the need is so great and you have so few resources and um, you must feel like a failure uh, that you can't meet all of these needs, that uh, it's just too overwhelming. And She said something to him that, in my view, turned upside down the leadership paradigms that we embrace in the United States and in many places around the world. She said, my dear Senator, God did not call me to be successful. He called me to be faithful. Faithful, not successful. Faithful, not successful. And, you know, those words are so profound because, again, God isn't concerned about whether you're successful in secular terms, financial terms, uh, or the the position on the organization chart that you hold, God looks at the heart. He wants to know what kind of character do you have? And are you communicating the values of the kingdom of God uh, to the people around you, the people you lead, the people you work with? Um, so I just think that that's been uh, something, that's a, a concept that uh, very much needs needed to be unpacked. And it's why I really wrote the book to call Christians to be wary of falling into the success trap and the drive for success that can become uh, really an idol in their lives. Well, Rich, as we think about character, these, these values that make a true leader, if we look around the world, you say there's been an attack on many of these values can you talk to us about the importance of values-driven leadership and, and what this type of leadership can mean for society? What impact do you think it can have on the world? Yeah, that, and that's important. You know, First of all, if you look around, I, I, have, I do feel like our values have been tested and even assaulted uh, over the last number of years. And there have been many corporate scandals, you know, maybe foremost in the minds of people might be the opioid crisis where pharmaceutical companies 
pushed and pushed and pushed to sell more and more opioid drugs, even when those drugs were causing severe addictions among their own customers and ultimately killing their own customers uh, from overdoses to opioids. And what was behind that was a a drive for successful, well, profits. It, It was a profit motive that we could make more and more and more money by selling more and more of these drugs. And so here's a company or a group of companies who started out with a noble mission to help people manage their medical pain. And then that got perverted in the drive for success so that they ended up literally killing off their own customers. And, uh, and, and it was devastating to our country. You know, people lost loved ones, mothers, fathers, sons, daughters through the opioid crisis. But that's not the only place we find crises in our culture. So, you know, there have been, well, you look at the Me Too movement and the revelations of the last four or five years in terms of the systemic abuse of women in the workplace, whether they work for a corporation or uh, an academic institution or even the church, um, there's been a terrible abuse of power uh, by those in leadership, particularly men in leadership. So the Me Too movement is another symptom of our values crisis. Um, And then you can look at our politics and the politics, the political climate around us is the most divisive and ugly in my lifetime that I can remember uh, in our country. So I think these values, these traditional, uh, and I'll call them Christian values, although I think they're universal values, ha- have really been taking a beating uh, in our culture. Um, so also, why write a book like this? There are many toxic workplace cultures in our country where people are treated very poorly or abused or manipulated. And and so values-driven leadership is, is about creating a culture in which people can flourish and people can rise to maximize their God-given potential, whatever that might be. Uh, so in the midst of this secular environment that we find ourselves in, I believe a Christian leader should stand out. Uh, they should be different. They, they could be, they can be, and should be an island in the storm, whatever that storm might be. Uh, maybe you work for a company that's got a really toxic workplace or it's so profit driven it's you know people are just pawns and they're used to generate more profits for the corporation or it could be a toxic workplace at a school or a hospital um, but uh, a Christian leader can be an island in that storm by leading with integrity with humility with compassion fairness empathy courage and when a Christian leader leads that way uh, he or she creates an environment where people really can flourish. And it's a wonderful witness to the Christian faith. Uh, Your character is your witness in the workplace, the place in which you work. So I think it's Christian leadership is very important, and not just in Christian ministries or churches, but if you work for Amazon or Microsoft or General Motors or Apple, um, being a Christian in that workplace, uh, I say in the book, that's really your job one. That's that's your one job, to be an ambassador for Christ in the place where you work, wherever that may be. And I think it's a really compelling argument that you make, Rich. But perhaps there's some readers, let's say Christian readers, who are just wondering the why, the what of, of leadership in their individual lives. What do you say to the person who wonders whether God really cares about the connection between their worship on Sunday and their work on Monday? You know, I spent a lot of my career selling things like deodorant, tableware, toys and games, 
And it would have been easy to ask the question, does God really care about that stuff? I mean, who cares if we sell more deodorant or less deodorant or more fine china or less fine china? But the, the thing I want Christian leaders to hear is that God cares about your work, whatever it is, because there are people that you work with and God cares about people. He cares about the people in your workplace, whatever that may be. And so your role in that workplace is to be that ambassador for Christ, to share and shed the love of Christ uh, among the people that you work with. And that doesn't mean that, you know, you have to pull out some Christian tract and lead them through the sinner's prayer. It just means that you're, you're a trusted colleague. You're a trusted friend to those people. You care about their, uh, their lives and uh, their careers. And if you're a leader over people, uh, you want those people to maximize their God-given talents. You want to see them succeed and, and, and get promotions and, and, uh, and do well. In other words, it's not about you as the Christian leader. And I think the problem with many leaders is it's all about them. They're selfish leaders. They're self-motivated. And the people around them are just pawns that they use uh, to get more promotions, more money, more bigger bonuses for themselves. And again, the Christian leader can stand apart in that kind of workplace uh, by being a person of integrity and, and character. So I think that's the reason that this leadership is so important. And we, we all know that uh, bad leaders can do tremendous damage uh, in our world. And you can think of a bad corporate leader, a bad political leader, a bad church leader. Uh, the fallout from uh, a negative leader can affect thousands and thousands of people uh, both in the institutions they work for and even outside those institutions. The opioid crisis is a good example. Um, so uh, conversely, though, good leaders, um, ethical leaders, can also do a great deal of good in our world and can make a difference uh, in the lives of the people that they work with and even the lives of people outside of the places where they work. So I think that's why it's so important. I think it's really well said. Well, Rich, uh, you've already told us some of your background, but you also devote an entire chapter to give this mini biography. Your book features many helpful anecdotes, but I think the story you provide here in this chapter, it really highlights God's providence in working through seemingly unlikely circumstances to get you where you are today. Can you talk to us about your experiences at Cornell and Wharton, your, your conversion, uh, and, and just learning to trust God's plan for your life. Well, you know, if, if you had asked my fraternity brothers at Cornell whether I would be likely to write, you know, a best-selling Christian book or to lead one of the biggest Christian ministries in the United States or in the world, they would have laughed uh, until they turned red in the face because when I was at Cornell, I was I was an atheist. I mean, I I didn't really see any need for God, didn't believe in God, and you know, I'd come from a broken home. I grew up in Syracuse, New York. Uh, my father was an alcoholic. Uh, my my mother was his third wife, and that marriage ended in divorce when I was about 10. The bank foreclosed on our house because my father went bankrupt. Uh, we were evicted. Uh, my dad had an eighth grade education. My mother never finished high school. So that was kind of what I'd come out of. And I, I, I became kind of this self-sufficient I don't need anybody to help me. I'm going to have to do this all by myself type person. And so going to not one, but two Ivy League schools was about my fierce determination not to be defined by my, my family or my background and to overcome that. And so 
that led to kind of a, well, this self-sufficient kind of atheism. I don't even need God to succeed. Uh, I'm going to do it all myself. And then uh, how did that change? You know, so my senior year at Cornell, um, just a month before I graduated, uh, I went on a blind date uh, with a freshman girl whose name was Renee. And on that first date, she literally pulled out the four spiritual laws, a campus crusade uh, tract that was used widely back then to basically ask people to make a commitment uh, to Christ. And, you know, I, I literally laughed at her when she pulled it out. I, I thought, are you really going to do this? You know, she said, yes, I'm very serious. You know, she was a Christian and she went to her campus crusade training and Anyways, to make a very long story short, we ended up having quite a good conversation that night about faith and life and our hopes and dreams for the future. And um, and there was something about her that I just was drawn to, the, her character, her faith. Her, um, anyways, we started dating. And even though it was an unlikely relationship, we kind of fell in love. You know, she was a Christian. I was an atheist. And then um, that following fall, uh, I went off to Wharton to get my MBA. She was still at Cornell. And, uh, but our relationship was very troubled because of the difference in our faith. You know, I had none and it was very, very important to her. And she finally broke up with me and said, I I just can't get any more serious with a guy that doesn't share my most deeply held beliefs about God. And so that breakup was very traumatic for me because we were in love. And so I started to my solution to this was I'm going to read about this. I'm going to read about this guy, Jesus, who my girlfriend just left me for some guy who's been dead for 2000 years. And I started reading book after book after book about the Christian faith and sincerely wanting to understand what did I miss? You know, what, what was I missing here? And I think that first year in business school, you know, I'd finished my, my assignments and I'd read till long after midnight, I'd read these Christian books. I think I read 50 books that year, uh, C.S. Lewis and books on apologetics, books on comparative religion and philosophy. And and finally, I was just intellectually convinced that the Christian story was true, that Jesus wasn't just a great teacher. He was literally the son of God. And and what scripture and the Bible was telling me was was actually true. And so, you know, as the story goes, I, I kind of got down on my knees. I closed this last book I'd finished and, and I prayed kind of an awkward prayer. God, I don't know what I'm doing, but I, I believe that this is true and I want to live my life for you, whatever that means. And I think I said something like, I'll, I'll go where you tell me to go. I'll do what you tell me to do. I want to follow you. And then that was it. That was the prayer. And I never really looked back after that. I I just was, I had a certainty that I'd done the right thing and that my faith was real. And so then the challenge became, how do you take this faith now into the workplace? So those jobs I talked about, how how does a Christian act, you know, at Gillette, at Parker Brothers, at Lenox? Uh, And so my long career was a lot about trying to figure out how to take my faith to work with me and how not to compartmentalize my faith, uh, which I think so many people do. You know, they, they, they leave their faith at the door on Monday morning and pick it up on Friday night. And their workplace is very secular and very challenging and sometimes difficult. And so they just don't feel like they can take their faith to work with them. 
And this book is about how we must take our faith to work, again, not in an obnoxious way, but in a life-giving way that, that, that helps people that we work with and, and creates better environments in which everyone can work together. So, uh, yeah, I'm an unlikely I'm an unlikely person to have written Christian books. I'm a very unlikely person to have led World Vision, a ministry that cares for the poor in 100 countries. Um, remember, I came from luxury goods, luxury tableware to World Vision very abruptly. But I, what I've learned through all of this is that God, God does have his hand on our lives. And if we are faithful to God in the small things, he may someday use us to do big things. And um, it's just a process of trusting and living uh, with Christ at the center of your, your life and, and then trusting him for the outcome, you know, see what he does with that. Well, Rich, I'm, I'm really glad you included this chapter in the book, especially because this experience of, of surrendering control of your life to the purposes of Christ, it's necessary for Christian obedience. And as it happens, it's actually fundamental to becoming a good leader, too. Uh, surrender mm-hmm. is the it's the first leadership value you address uh, in the book here in chapter three. It's followed by sixteen other values in the subsequent chapters. We've talked about you've mentioned some of these: sacrifice, trust, love, excellence, humility, integrity, vision, courage, generosity, perseverance, forgiveness, self awareness, balance, humor, encouragement, and listening. And we won't have time to unpack each chapter. But maybe now you can give us sort of a quick rundown of the key principles of, of some of these values, maybe a few that you find most important for our current climate. Um, and then maybe we'll spend some time on, on a few others after that. Sure. Um, that's a lot to do in one question, but it's it's uh, you were kind of read all of those values that I unpack. There's a chapter for each of those values in the book, but the very first chapter is the value of surrender. And uh, I, I say that where a Christian leader needs to begin is with surrender. Because if you don't surrender, you know, and, and I say in the book, you know, we, we have these paradigms in our mind, leaders never surrender. They never quit. They never give up. Leaders are strong. They're powerful. Take no prisoners, you know, but Christian leadership is just the opposite. Uh, the first thing God asks us to do is to surrender our lives, you know, surrender to him. Uh, everything, not just, uh, you know, saying, mouthing some words of a prayer, but saying, Lord, my, my life is yours, my career is yours, my financial condition is yours, my hopes and dreams and aspirations are yours to do with as you please. Even my family is yours. I'm trusting you for all of this, and I surrender. And I, I say in the book that surrender uh, surrender is one of the hardest things we're ever asked to do. And in fact, it's one of the reasons some people never become Christians, because it requires them to give over control of their life to someone else. And that's, that's a hard step for anybody to take. So surrender is the starting point for Christian leadership. And, and if you're a surrendered leader and you're in some workplace, um, you've already surrendered your future career, your promotions, your salary. All of that's been given over to God. Lord, you manage that. I'm just going to try to be your ambassador in this place. And if if I end up getting promotions and raises, that's fine. But my reason for being here is because I'm surrendered to you and I want to be your representative in the place that I work. And I want to reflect positively on, uh, on 
on on God and Jesus Christ because and if I can be Christ-like in my workplace, then that reflects well on the one that I follow. So it starts with surrender. But you know, some of the other principles, uh, these are all important values and, and attributes of a leader, but a few I would pick out, you know, probably I'd start with integrity. You know, a person with no integrity is, is like a ship without a rudder. And, um, and, you know, I say in the book that everybody wants to work for someone who is a person of integrity, a person whose word is their bond, a person that you can trust uh, to do the right thing, to do the fair thing, uh, a person that has the integrity to admit their own shortcomings and mistakes and to forgive others when they make a mistake and ask for forgiveness when, when they make a mistake as a leader. And um, integrity is about truth-telling as well. Uh, you, a person of integrity is not a manipulator. Uh, they're, they're, they're not spewing lies uh, for their own benefit. Um, they're not spinning every uh, workplace issue to, uh, to benefit themselves. So integrity, a person of integrity, a leader of integrity creates a, a wonderful environment where other people can work because they can focus on the work and not worry about you know, what's the boss going to think or what are the office politics telling me to do in this situation? So integrity is critical. And I think, you know, we've even seen in our politics what happens when people that don't have a lot of integrity are in public office and spreading falsehoods. And, you know, it, it can create tremendous uh, damage, uh, do damage. So integrity is very important. What goes with that is humility. I think Rick Warren, the well-known pastor and author, said this. I don't know if he was the first one to say it, but he said, um, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And I like that definition because humility doesn't mean that you aren't confident. You know, you can be a gifted, accomplished person with lots of skills. And humility just means, it doesn't mean you deny those skills and, you know, pretend like you don't have them. It just means that, um, you don't think less of yourself, but you think of yourself less. You, you, you take all of those skills in the workplace and you think, how can I use these skills to the benefit of others? How can I bring out the giftedness in the people that work for me? How can I use these skills to serve you know, people that are maybe higher in the organization than me or lateral in the organization from me? Um, and a person of humility is a person who will listen, a person who doesn't believe they have all the right answers. The world doesn't revolve around them, and they, they, they take counsel well from the people who work for them, the people above them, below them, and, uh, and lateral to them. Uh, they're good listeners, and they, they, um, they value the opinions of other people because they realize that they don't have all the answers. I often describe a great leader being something like an orchestra conductor. You know, the orchestra conductor she doesn't know how to play the violin like the first violinist does. She doesn't know how to play the percussion. Um, but she looks out at the musicians and she sees the incredible talents out there and she's their leader. Right. And so her job is to bring the beautiful music out of the people in the orchestra who have these wonderful gifts and talents. And the best leaders are like orchestra leaders. They recognize that they don't have all the skills necessary to play the symphony themselves. But if they can bring out the best of the talents of the musicians around them, uh, the result can be a, just a beautiful symphony of music. 
So uh, the best leaders are invested in helping the people around them to succeed and to do their best and to realize their potential. And, um, you know, we talk about mentoring sometimes in the workplace where a good leader tries to mentor the younger people underneath them so that they can sometime become the leader or the CEO or the vice president. And, uh, you know, I know I'm really pleased that uh, there's probably a dozen people that worked for me at World Vision over the years that are now CEOs of other organizations. And I just love seeing them out there being great leaders and making a difference, you know, with their leadership skills. So I've talked about surrender. I've talked about integrity. I've talked about humility. I'm trying to think of there's one other one that I'd mention here. Um, actually, a, a one that's humorous is humor. I think good leaders use humor well. And um, that seems like a funny leadership quality, but, you know, a leader who uses humor well, it can be used to shape culture in an organization. It can be used to ease tension in stressful situations. It can bring a healthier perspective to some of the challenges the team is facing in the workplace. So a leader who has an easy sense of humor, it really can be a gift to the people that they're leading. And, and I would just have one caveat. The, the humor can't be uh, destructive humor. You know, there's a, there's a kind of humor that uh, makes other people the laughingstock of the humor, uh, or it's sarcastic and cutting humor that is designed to hurt other people. I'm not talking about that kind of humor. I'm talking about even kind of self-effacing humor where a leader doesn't take themselves too seriously and uh, they can laugh at themselves and they can help the team, you know, see the humor in a situation. Uh, humor is a great icebreaker as well in a tense meeting or something's gone wrong. So humor is, is I think, a, a leadership quality you don't think of very often, but um, it's great to have a leader who's got a good sense of humor and can laugh at themselves and laugh at the situation that uh, the team finds themselves in. So I, I'll stop with those. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And, and, and I appreciate you drawing out some of those principles. Maybe some of our listeners, they've, they've been around a while and are in varying positions of leadership today, but perhaps some others are younger, maybe aspiring leaders. What is something about leadership uh, you wish you had known earlier in life that, that folks just beginning their career might, might be able to take away? Well, you know, um, writing this book was really, uh, my real intention was to share a lot of things with younger leaders that I wish I had known when I was, when I was younger. You know, these are things you learn along the way and you say, well, gee, if I'd only known that 20 years ago, I would have been a better leader 20 years ago, uh, in, in that role that I had. So, um, yeah, I think, uh, maybe I'd start with just a foundational principle is that it starts with an understanding of literally the meaning of your life in Christ. And, uh, you know, we're not just killing time here on earth until we finally die and get reunited with the Lord. You know, we, we're, we're people on mission. We have been sent, the, the, the Lord has sent us into the world as his ambassadors. And I use that phrase ambassadors multiple times in this interview, as you know, from the book, the key Bible verse I use is 2 Corinthians 5.20, which says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God is making his appeal through us. So when you think of yourself, wow, Christ is making his appeal to the world 
through us. We are his ambassadors. And what does an ambassador do? An ambassador represents the one who sent them. Uh, and you represent the values and the qualities uh, and the character of the, the one that sends you to be that ambassador. And so it starts with understanding that your work matters because you were sent by God into that workplace. You were sent as an ambassador with an ambassadorial assignment uh, to work for his kingdom. So um, if you keep that in mind, um, you know, I talk about it being, uh, there's, there's a part of the book that says you have this one job and you might remember it. And sometimes we've used that phrase sarcastically. You go to a restaurant and the waiter, you know, he waits 20 minutes to bring you a menu and then he gets your order all wrong and he can't fill up your water glass. And then you wait another 25 minutes for the check after you're all done eating. And you think you had this one job. You just had to, you know, take our order, bring the food and bring the check. And you couldn't even do that one job. And I use that metaphor because I I think God might look at us some same way sometimes and say, I gave you this one job, you know, to represent me as my ambassador in the world. And you insist on doing other things instead. You know, you're neglecting your one job. And so I kind of say in that chapter that, you know, when I was at Lennox as the CEO, that was my cover job, but my real job was Christ's ambassador at Lennox. And I just happened in my cover job to sell fine china and crystal and lead a company that sold fine china and crystal. So, you know, it starts as a younger leader to by realizing why you are there. I, I talk a lot in the book about the why of leadership. You know, you're not there to be successful. You're not there to make a lot of money. You're not there to get promotions. You're there to serve Christ and be his ambassador. Now, you might make a lot of money. You might get promotions. I did, you know, and and that's fine. But that's a byproduct. You know, success is a byproduct. It's not the goal. The goal is to be a successful ambassador uh, for Christ. So I think that's what puts your feet squarely on the ground as a, as a young leader. And then these other qualities are really about, well, how do I behave in the workplace? What kind of colleague do I want to be to the people around me? And again, you know, to Paul uses the phrase, we are the fragrance of Christ uh, in the world. And so we want to be the fragrance of Christ in the workplace. Uh, again, not in a cloying way where you're the religious guy that's always, you know, uh, the, the the party pooper that but just in a way that you're, you're reliable, you're truthful, you're trustworthy, you know, you're humble, you're kind, you're, you care about the people around you and people notice that. Um, and it provokes the question, why, why are you different? Why, you know, why do you behave differently in this workplace than maybe other bosses that I've had? And, you know, that gives you an opportunity to talk a little bit about what you believe. So I think, you know, and then I just add one last thing, uh, Zach, um, the power of encouragement. Uh, I think I say in the book, if I had one thing I wish I'd known better as a young leader, it's the power of encouragement, that when you encourage people, when you affirm their their positive traits and attributes, you know, we all have positives and negatives in our character and our, our personality and even in our skill sets. We're good at some things, we're not good at other things. But when you affirm somebody's good points, you know, they've done some, they've said something really helpful in a meeting and you affirm it or you, you know, you pull them aside after the meeting and say, man, you're, you're common in there, changed the whole way I thought about that decision. You really helped me make a better decision. That affirmation, that encouragement, uh, 
really propels those people. They, they, they'll work even harder. They, you know, they, they're so grateful that you've recognized them um, for their contributions that they're more motivated. They're more likely to uh, speak up the next time and offer more input and more advice. And so just encouraging people, focusing on their positives more than their negatives. Um, Again, there's a time and place to say, well, you know, I wish you'd done this better and I wish you could have uh, accomplish this faster than you did, but a little bit of honey makes the sugar makes the medicine go down. And uh, if we're really good encouragers, uh, it really is a motivational tool where you'll get the most out of the people that work for you because they'll be so motivated because they've got an encouraging boss. Yeah, that's very good. Well, Rich, you've written just a, a really helpful, a really timely book. Um, and I think this is a, a, a refreshing addition to leadership literature. In many ways, like we've said, uh, it's challenging conventional understandings and models of leadership and offering instead this outlook that, that's grounded in, in, in the sovereign purposes, the, the good plan of God for our lives. Before we wrap up, though, Rich, can you tell us uh, something of what you're working on next? <laughs> well, it's a little soon to... to to have that. I've, I've been retired now about two years and I've, I've written this book. Um, you know, after COVID, I want to uh, uh, get to see my grand my grandsons. I have six grandsons all over the country. And of course, we've been locked down uh, uh, for pretty much a year, not being able to see most of them. And so my wife and I plan to do some uh, travel. We're both vaccinated now. We want to go see uh, our family more than we've been able to this year. I also, I serve as president emeritus of World Vision. So I'm still kind of an ambassador for the World Vision ministry, which means speaking engagements now and then and, you know, helping them out on different things. And I don't know if there's another book in me. This is my fourth book. um, And, you know, there may or may not be another book in me. I'm thinking about that, but not, not ready to commit to it yet. Very good. Well, for now, thank you so much for writing this book. It's called Lead Like It Matters to God, Values-Driven Leadership in a Success-Driven World, published in 2021 with InterVarsity Press. And Rich, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thanks, Zach, for uh, your good questions. Thanks. And, And thank you all for listening today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network.